Um, good to be here. I haven't been with you since uh, sort of before Christmas, so I hope you had a wonderful Christmas and all went well. Uh, I did not hear about the... Um, the what's that? The white elephant gift. I was going to ask about the white elephant gift. I haven't heard, uh, I don't see anyone wearing anything that looks uh, particularly weird or uh, unusual, so I guess that all, that all was good. Um, so it's, it's a, a, a joy to be able to be with you, and uh, we are looking forward to our time together being able to share with you God's word. I am, today is a day of confessions, I guess. Uh, Rick was talking about his glasses in Sunday school, and uh, so I'll have to admit this morning, I'm using a little something different this morning. I'm not used to preaching off of an iPad. Uh, but all of my, everyone I know now is preaching using an iPad, and so I am trying to get used to it. I've done it twice now, and so I, I have my notes written just in case uh, things fall apart, but I'm trying to gradually get me into the new age, you know, trying to get me a little up to date. So uh, the neat thing is, like, you put all your messages on this, you just carry it with you, except when the battery runs out or uh, something of that nature. So... Um, who knows what's going to happen, but uh, we, we should be good this morning. Um, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn this morning to the book of Daniel, chapter 9. If, if I were uh, here for <coughs> an extended period of time, I would love to uh, preach through uh, the book of Daniel. I think I did that when I was pastoring here at one point. Um, it is a wonderful book filled with, with great examples of, of God's marvelous uh, working on the behalf of his people. Uh, the first six chapters probably are some of the most loved chapters because some of the, the wonderful stories that are there of Daniel and his, his uh, uh, friends and their stand for the Lord. The last part of the book almost all deals with prophecy some of it already past, some of it still yet future. Uh, but we're going to focus our attention in, in chapter 9. When I was a teenager, I grew up in southern Ohio uh, in the 70s particularly. It was not uncommon to hear messages on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, they were really pretty much staples. Of, of, of preaching and of our, our diet back then. Uh, there are a lot of things that contributed to that. Uh, a, lot of put, a lot of people put the, 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 the country's anniversary, 200th anniversary, 1976, as a watershed moment. And many people thought that for some reason the Lord was going to come on, on that year. I'm not sure why. Uh, we were in a heated Cold War with the Soviet Union. And uh, many people were feared the world could look like it could end in a blaze of nuclear fury. Uh, I remember returning one time from a special evangelistic crusade uh, where the preacher who was known for his preaching on, on um, things dealing with the last times had a famous message. Some of you probably had, have even heard this message in years past uh, entitled The Coming War with Russia. 
And so, you know, and he described all the things that would happen during the, uh, during the tribulation period, particularly the latter half of the tribulation period. I remember him talking about how the moon was going to turn to blood red and, and, and all these things. And I remember driving home from that as a child, looking out the back window of my car, and the moon was red. <laughs> and I thought, this is it. The Lord's coming tonight. Uh, and that thought of the Lord's return um, did not scare me, even as a young child. Uh, but, but it gave me hope, encouraged me. And the thought of the Lord's return and the hope that it gives should give you hope and encouragement and uh, should not lead you to fear. Today, there's not nearly as much preaching on the second coming. One of the reasons is that the preaching in my youth tended towards sensationalism and oftentimes extreme date setting. Uh, late in 1995, I picked up a copy of a book written by family radio founder Harold Camping, entitled 1994, predicting his understanding of certain biblical texts that the Lord would come on September 6, 1994. I mean, he had it down to the day. Uh, it was in the discount section by the time I picked it up <laughs> in 1995. <laughs> he did come up with a revised version of 1995. And uh, that likewise failed to come to pass. Uh, he went on to predict that the world would end on May 21, 2011. Uh, I, was, I remember here, I was, I, was, I was pastoring here at the time, and I, I remember, found it very interesting that Family Radio was still accepting donations for programming beyond that date. <laughs> that doesn't give you a whole lot of confidence, right, <laughs> that he had much confidence in that. Uh, I guess they just wanted to be prepared. Or maybe he thought he would own the only radio station during the millennial reign of Christ. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. But uh, I say that to point out that these sensational and non-biblical claims tend to chill the interest of God's people in true biblical teaching on the Lord's return. But we are living in times where God's people and even the unsaved are starting to question what's happening in the world around us. I was pastoring here when the first Iraq war broke out. I remember getting phone calls from people. Well, didn't the Bible say something about Israel and, and there being a war over there? And, and uh, every time something happens of worldwide significance, especially wars or something related to Israel or, or, or to the Middle East, many people who aren't really un, unsure of Bible prophecy, unsure of Bible teaching, begin to think, well, maybe there's something, you know, about this that we, we've heard about that's coming true. We have to be very careful how we answer people's questions regarding current events. You know, people say, well, was this worldwide virus, COVID, was that a sign of the Lord's return? Uh, well, what about the wars today that's going on in the world? And, and the truth is that, the, that there are many things that do show us this, the age in which we live. But the next event on the prophetic calendar is the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Paul talked about looking forward to that blessed hope and that glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And there are no signs for the rapture, the imminent return 
of Christ, when he meets us, when we meet him in the air. Now, there are signs of the Lord's physical return to the earth. And so we know that happens seven years, approximately seven years of tribulation. There are some times probably in between the rapture and that beginning of that seven years. But approximately seven years or so after that point, the Lord will physically return to the earth. So there is a sense in which we can know the seasons without knowing the exact time. But even that, we, Jesus warns us to be careful of that because you know, people have thought the Lord's return was coming all the way since the time of Christ. And, but when you do look, as you, but, but you see things. When I, well, when I was a young man, I, I, I read things about you know, the time, things that would happen during the tribulation. I think, how, how could those happen? How could, how could you know, buying and selling be limited to people who had the mark of the beast? How, could, how would they ever do that? Uh, how would that, you know, the, the seal being put in your forehead and on the back of your hand, how, how could that do that? And I remember back in the early 80s picking up a copy of the San Francisco Chronicle, so I knew it was true, um, <laughs> that people could, they, they were talking about contemplating putting computer chips in the back of people's hands and, and actually even maybe putting it on their forehead, they said, so you could be scanned. Like, that's, that's ridiculous, right? No one would ever do that, right? And, and yes, it's, it's being done in some places today. Uh, and we could go on and on about different things, the alliance of nations that are mentioned in the scriptures and other things. So it's very easy to see if the Lord were to come today, I mean, if you didn't have time, if this service did not end and, 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 and we would meet the Lord in the air, uh, that would be a great benediction hymn, by the way, to end the service with. But we met the Lord in the air. I, I can fully understand, looking at world events today, how the world would, especially without the testimony and the witness of believers here on this earth and the, and the Spirit of God who indwells us today, I can certainly see how the world would fall into the seven years of, of tribulation and how that could play out very easily. It, it's not a stretch of imagination. So I say that saying that though we don't know the day or the time, we do know the season. And we don't know how long this time will last, how bad things will get before the Lord takes us home. But the darker the night, always the brighter the dawn. Uh, we have yet to begin the oppression and the horrors of the years immediately before the Lord's return, but we look forward to the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So saying all that, I'd like you to look here in Daniel chapter 9, because as I said, the, though the first six chapters, although there is some prophetic uh, prophecy in those first six chapters, it, it, we, we, we know that primarily for the great stories that are there, but in chapters 7 through the end of the book, we, we find the emphasis on uh, prophetic statements that are made. Uh, chapter 7 is the vision of the four great world empires, the four world kingdoms to come. Chapter 8 records the rising of the prince that will come, the Antichrist and his foreshadowing. Chapters 10 and 11 is the vision of the struggle that will come among the nations following Daniel's time and the leading up to the time of Christ and much that has been fulfilled. Chapter 12 foretells the rise of the final kingdom of our Lord and the judgment to everlasting contempt or reward to everlasting life. 
But we come to chapter 9, and chapter 9 comes after chapter 8's description of the man of sin and focuses on Daniel's prayer of hope. The last verse of chapter 8 says that Daniel, upon seeing the vision of the man who would destroy the temple of God and profane the altar so that the worship of God would cease, caused him to be faint and to be sick for days. But in chapter 9, the tone changes because there is hope. Now, if you weren't in the Sunday school class this morning here for Sunday school, uh, I'll put in a plug for Rick's class. He did a great job just going through the book of Hebrews and he talked about hope. And uh, Hebrews 11 begins talking about the hope that we have. And when we talk about, as a Christian, hope, we're not talking about just, oh, I, I hope, I hope, I hope this happens. But we're talking about a confidence assurance, which is based on the evidence, the truth of God's word, which is our foundation. And as we get into this chapter, though we think of this Chapter 9, primarily as because of the sequence of time that's mentioned, we'll see here in the last part of this chapter. But really, the great truth here is that our hope gives us confidence. And our hope is found in our understanding of and obedience to the revelation of God. Because Daniel began and understood, read and understood the scriptures, he had hope in this time as, as he is in captivity. Even though he is in a position of leadership, he is still in captivity. He's still there, in essence, in bondage. But that gave him hope for his people. And I want us to consider two things this morning about Daniel's hope and how it was affected by the revelation of God and what that means for us as we understand these scriptures as well. What do we mean by, by this? First of all, Daniel's hope was stirred by his understanding of God's revelation. In other words, it was God's revelation that, that began to stir his mind, encourage him, direct his thoughts to where they should be during this time of captivity. The first 19 verses of this chapter describes Daniel's initial dealing with the scriptures and what that meant to him. Let's just read. We're not going to read all these 19 verses, but let's read beginning at verse 1 to get us kind of in the context here to understand what's happening. Beginning at verse 1, Daniel chapter 1. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Aserus of the lineage of Medes, who was uh, made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our king. 
and our princes to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face as it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off and all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. And he goes on to, in this prayer, to confess his sin and unworthiness. Daniel's thinking, his attitude changes from what you read in the last part of chapter 8 when he faints and is sick for days um, because of what he understood and, and, and had to do with the vision he had gotten of, of, of these, all these things that were going to come to pass. What changed that? It was changed because he began to understand Jeremiah's prophecy uh, that had been del delivered to Daniel. Jeremiah had been taken to Egypt. His first writing had been destroyed, but God commanded him to write it again, if you remember that story. And then it in that writing, it says the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. I'm going to keep your finger right there in Daniel. We'll come back here in just a moment. But Jeremiah 25, and in uh, verses 11 and 12, Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12, this is what Daniel read, okay? He's reading about the captivity, the, the captivity, the prophecy. Jeremiah wrote before Israel was taken into captivity. They were still uh, there as a people, as a nation in the land. And Jeremiah's writing this talking about how God was going to take them away captive. In fact, Jeremiah was persecuted greatly because he was predicting and telling the king that, you know, God's going to destroy this country. And that was not a popular message to be preaching. But verse 11, he says in this prophecy, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass when the seven years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. And then if you go back to chapter 29, chapter 29, it says, These are the words of the letter and Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive to the priests and prophets and all the people who Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem. This, this is telling you how Daniel got this letter, how he was reading this back in chapter 9. This is what he's read. And you go through this, and you read through chapter 29, and it, it says a little bit later here that, again, 70 years, he says, are upon the people. Uh, they're going to be carried away, he says, in verse 7. Uh, the Lord of hosts that says this, they, they prophesied, people prophesied falsely. This is, you know, saying this is not going to happen. He says it is going to happen. And he goes, I will not take time to read this chapter, but talks about here again in chapter 29, 70 years are going to be determined. Now, Daniel is reading this. And Daniel knows the time and the day that they were taken into captivity. And he starts doing a little bit of math, and he realizes those 70 years are coming 
Uh, not to an end yet, but they are, in, they are in sight. And so because of that, he has hope. And during this time, he not just is excited about this, but it leads him to do a couple of diff uh, different things. Uh, it, it leads him to, to begin to pray. In, in chapter 9, the bulk of these first 19 verses is Daniel's prayer and uh, for his people and prayer for his country. Uh, it, it begins with, with him, him praying and humbling himself in verse 3 making confession to the Lord for the sins of his people. And it's interesting. He says, for example, verse 5, we have done wickedly. Uh, he confesses to departing from the Lord's precepts. We have not heeded your servants who spoke in your name, verse 6. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his ways. The curse of the written in the law of Moses has been poured out on us, verse 11. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think Daniel personally was guilty of all this? I mean, he, he's probably he's the most righteous man in the kingdom. He's the man that we read back in chapter 1 who purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself before God. And he stood against the, uh, against the threats of, of Nebuchadnezzar and, and the others who were threatening trying to destroy Daniel and, and destroy his, his uh, godly friends. But Daniel identifies with the people of God. He identifies with, with God's people, and he includes himself by humbly acknowledging and repenting of his sins. His knowledge of God's word now brought him to a place where he realized that if he would confess his sins and, and he would turn and repent, that that would perhaps lead to others turning and repenting and turning back to to, to the God, and, and God would bring about this conclusion as he had prophesied uh, to Jeremiah. When you think about what's happening in our world today, it's easy as a Christian to look at the sins of this world all around us and just to be disgusted with many of the evils that we see around us. And, and there's a sense in which we can understand that. Uh, I, 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 since I've just been here the few days in, back to California, oh man, I've seen a couple of things that just made me shake my head and sick to my stomach. Like, oh, this is happening in Hollister? Uh, we, we, took, we have our grandkids with us for a couple of days and uh, took them to the park yesterday and uh, there was a guy with a couple of kids and, and um, said, uh, uh, he's telling me, he says, go get our rainbow ball, kids. Go get our rainbow ball. He's playing with a rainbow ball. Uh, we stopped by a restaurant to pick something up to eat. I wasn't sure if the guy that was there was, I think he was a man trying to be a girl. Um, I mean, I was, uh, about three or four things just in the last couple of days that, that could just make you sick. But when we pray for the sins of our country, we need also to humble ourselves and consider, like Daniel did, our own sins. Because God did not say, when the world repents and turns to me, then I will hear their voice. He says, when my people, when my people 
turn from their sins and confess and seek my face. It's easy to complain about those who do wickedly, but, but what are we doing to bear his name in this wicked generation? What about our evil thoughts and disobedience to God's word? What about our rebellion against God? What about our disobedience to God? We, we can't really do anything about the sins and the wickedness and the disobedience of the unsaved world when we are not willing to deal with our own unrighteousness and to humbly submit ourselves before God. As Daniel read the scriptures and understood the scriptures and understood God's, what God was going to do, he began to pray for restitution, for forgiveness. He asked God to turn his fury away from his people. He asked God to show his favor upon the temple, which was desolate, and to restore his city to Jerusalem, all because he had an understanding that had been stirred by his understanding of the word of God. As we get into the word of God and study the word of God and become scripture-focused in our life, scripture-centered in our life, God will use the scripture to, to convict us. God will use the scripture to give us understanding. God will give, use it all to give us hope that is based not on just something I hope is going to take place, but that will be based on the concrete foundation of the word of God. So Daniel's hope was stirred by his understanding of God's revelation. But secondly, it wasn't just stirred, but it was confirmed by his understanding of God's revelation. Move over to, chapter, uh, to verse 20 of Daniel chapter 9. And we read here in beginning of verse 20, he says, Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplication, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. It's interesting here, in answer to Daniel's prayer, God sends Gabriel, one of the angels, few angels that are mentioned in the word of God, who comes to give Daniel, he says, the skill to understand, the specifics about how God's going to do this and how things are going to play out. What is interesting here, and a footnote to this, is that Gabriel says that at the beginning of, uh, at the beginning of Daniel's request, he had been sent out to tell him, but he now just had gotten to him. The dynamics of prayer and the delay in the hearing of the answer to our prayer does not mean our prayers have not been answered. Daniel had faith to continue to pray when there seemed like there was no indication he had been heard. There are times when you pray and it seems like the heavens are like brass and like God is not hearing. By faith we continue to pray because we know that God hears us because his word tells us he hears us. And even though we do not receive an immediate answer, one of the most fascinating stories in the whole Bible, I just love the story, is in, in the next chapter, chapter 10, when he records an angel coming to Daniel in answer to his prayer, but he says he was delayed by the prince of the kingdom of Persia for 21 days until Michael the archangel came to help him. 
I don't understand exactly all that means. I'll, I'll, I'll be the first to tell you. I don't understand all that. But what I do understand from that is that there is a great spiritual battle going on in the world that we do not see. And, and this angel that comes to Daniel says, we heard your prayer, but I came, but the prince of Persia, or the king of Persia, uh, was, was stopping me. He's not talking about a physical human being but some spiritual being that perhaps was committed to that kingdom, to the kingdom of Persia, who was leading them in their evil way. We don't know all, all exactly what that entails, but it was a spiritual batter, battle that occurred until he said, God sent Michael the archangel. Michael came to help me, and that's why I'm here. We pray for things sometimes that we know as in the will of God. But it seems like nothing's happening. If we are praying within the will of God based on what we know God has revealed to us in Scripture, then we can pray in confidence and we can pray in hope and we can continue to pray and hang on in prayer until, until God sees that answer come to pass, if it is his will. If we are praying... In, I mean, the Bible said, Jesus said, if you pray anything according to my will, I will hear you. And sometimes, like Daniel, we pray and the answer does not seem to come. 21 days. Most of us would be happy if it only took 21 days for some of our prayers, prayers to be answered. But Daniel struggled during this time. Lord, where are you? Lord, you, you give me this vision, but Lord, I don't understand it. What, what does this mean? How, how are you going to do this for your people? How are you going to restore our nation again? But he prayed, he fervently prayed, and finally the angel brought the answer to his prayer came, even though he had been resisting. In beginning at verse 24, we find the answer that Daniel had asked for, the explanation of this vision and what was going to happen. Now, this exclamation could easily absorb an entire message. But I wanted you to see the bigger picture in the context, not just focus on these uh, few verses. Uh, but he begins to give the revelation, the explanation of um, the 70 weeks and, and what that was to mean. So let me try to briefly summarize what this vision is talking about. Beginning, let's read with me, beginning at verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people. Who's your people? That's Israel. And for your holy city. That's Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Most High. Now, 70 weeks, the term, the Hebrew word weeks, refers to a, a unit of seven. Hebrew scholars agree that it can mean eight, seven days, seven weeks, seven months, seven years. It's determined by the context. 
the only context that works, the, on, the only explanation that works in this context is years. So 70 periods of seven years are 490 years. 490 years are set aside, he says, to accomplish six things. Notice, this is for Israel. This is not for the world at large, for the Gentiles at large. The first of these is to finish the transgressions. That means to make an end to Israel's sin and apostasy. At the end of this 490 years, these 70 weeks, Israel's sin will be ended, their apostasy, their turning away from God will have ended. So secondly, to make an end of sins, that is to bring sin to final judgment, that there will be judgment made for these sins. Thirdly, to bring in everlasting, uh, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Make reconciliation for iniquity. How did that happen? That's a picture of the cross, what Jesus did to make reconciliation for, for sins, for iniquity. Fourthly, to bring in everlasting righteousness. That is to bring righteousness on the earth. Everlasting righteousness, not temporary righteousness. To seal up the vision and prophecy. That means termination of direct revelation. In this time, there'll be no more direct revelation. It'll be ended. No, no need for it. And six, to anoint the most holy or to anoint Christ as king or to dedicate the future of the Holy of Holies. Now, let me ask you, have all those things happened yet? Is, are, are we living in perfect righteousness, everlasting righteousness? Uh, has he been anointed uh, here on this earth in the Holy of Holies? No, he has not. Some of this has happened. Uh, reconciliation has been made for iniquity, but Israel's sin certainly has not been brought to a conclusion, and the judgment for that sin has not been handled. When is this going to happen? These six things have not happened yet. Well, there's a time frame here. What is this? And again, this is for Israel. Okay, this is for Israel. Now, we'll see where we fit in here in a moment, but this is for Israel. These six things. So here's a couple things to remember. Here's the starting point. He says, from the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Well, when did that happen? Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, chapter 2, verses 1 to 8, is the command given by Artaxerxes, the decree to rebuild the temple, not the temple, but the city. That's what, Daniel's prophecy here is, is, is talking about. No one understand that from the going forth of the command, verse 26, to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be 70, uh, be seven weeks and, and 62 weeks, that's 69 weeks. And the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So the starting point, now, Bible, not every Bible scholar agrees with this exact designation. So I've looked at all the different options. Personally, I think this is the most accurate. This seems to make the most sense. It, it fits in completely with Scripture. And this is what he's talking about. The command, the command we read in Nehemiah, 
that seems to be it. We know, because of history, it was not a hidden thing, that this decree of Artaxerxes, we know from secular history, uh, that this took place in 445 BC. It actually took place, uh, from what many scholars understand, uh, on March 14th, 445 BC. If that is accurate, that was the beginning of the 70 weeks here that the angel is telling Daniel. The Jewish year is 360 days, not 365 as it is on our calendar. So you can actually figure out 173,380 days is what that comes to, which leads to April 6, 32 AD. 32 AD? Oh, that's the year Christ was crucified. And actually, Luke 19, verses 28 to 44, especially verses 41 44, Christ offers himself as the Messiah. We call it Palm Sunday. And he is rejected. So many scholars believe I am in, in agreement with this. Some would be off a day or two, have a couple of different, slight, different variations and explanations. But I think what makes the most sense to me is that the, that is the beginning and the end of those 69 weeks. They ran their course to the very day of Christ presenting himself as king. Then look in verse 26. After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary the end of it shall be with a flood till the end of the war. Desolations are determined. At the end of that 69 weeks, Messiah will be cut off. And now attention turns to that 70th week, that last period of sevens, seven years, that we commonly refer to as the tribulation period. Now, during this time, the prince that will come, the Antichrist, will destroy the city, the sanctuary, Till the end of the wars of desolations is determined, he will make a covenant with Israel for this week, but in the middle of the week, he's going to violate it, bringing an end to the sacrifice and offerings. And um, we could go in great detail, talk about what happens during the tribulation period, but we're not going to do that this morning. That's a whole different subject. And but he's giving Daniel an overview, a picture of what's going to happen. For, the, for 69 weeks, Six to nine weeks have ended. But there is no evidence of the 70th week or the last seven years have begun. Why? Because that is a time which the Old Testament prophets did not see. Best described, best description I ever heard of it is like when you are standing looking at a couple of mountains in the difference, in the distance. And you see this beautiful mountain with this majestic peak right in front of you. But then you see above that mountain, yet another peak. It looks like those two mountains are the same. Until you climb that mountain, first mountain, and then you look way over that to that other peak and you realize there's a huge valley in between these two peaks. Christ's first coming, when he came into this world, many thought Messiah has come. That's what the Jews were looking for. Messiah's going to come. He's going to establish his kingdom. No, that was just his coming to make, to make the sacrifice for our sins. We look off at the distance and we see when he's going to come again to this earth. 
But in between, there's this valley. Uh, we oftentimes refer to it as uh, the uh, parenthesis. And the fact is, why has this 70th week not yet happened? Well, because the Bible talks about, in Luke chapter uh, 21, it talks about the time of the Gentiles. This is the time which, which, in which we now live. We live in this valley in between the time of the Lord's first coming and the time of the Lord's second coming. Uh, Luke talks about how till the Lord's not coming back till the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Paul talked about the mystery of the church. Why was it a mystery? Because it had not been seen by the Old Testament prophets. You don't really see the, the, the church predicted or spoken about in the Old Testament. Uh, it, it was a mystery hidden by God, Paul says, this mystery. But in this prophecy, so in this prophecy, we see the time of the Lord's coming when he's going to be cut off. And then we see the time of the Lord's future coming when he comes again, that 70th week. We are living today between the 69th and the 70th week. And we don't know how long that period is going to last. It's lasted for over 2,000 years. Could last another 1,000 years. I don't think so when you look at the condition of the world today, but it could. We don't know what. So we have to be careful. We're not going to set a date and say, oh, this is, you know, this is when it's going to happen. We're not going to fall into... You know, Harold Camping's uh, error and say it's going to be, you know, 2025. Might sell a few books. They'll look pretty foolish in 2026. But the truth is that we do know the Lord is coming. And when we can see that we're getting close to the other mountains, we think, man, this valley has to be coming to an end pretty soon. And because of that hope, because of those truths in Scripture, we have hope. Because we know the Lord is coming again. And, and so, so what do we do? Do we just sit back and, and do nothing? Well, as the bride of Christ today, we look forward to Christ's return. Not to the earth, as described in Revelation and Zechariah, where Christ descends to the Mount of Olives. We can read that in, in several places in the scriptures. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says that we will meet him in the air. That those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with the Lord to meet him in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then you get into Revelation and you find, here comes the church beginning of, of the tribulation they're, they're, they're riding with Christ and we are seen up in heaven when did that happen it happened when Christ came for his people so our hope today is, is not for the, the coming judgment of God or for the, for the millennium to appear or no that's not going to happen yet but our immediate hope is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ as described in the New Testament. Well, what do we do? Do we sit back, do we, do we sit back and just wait? You know, um, Seventh-day Adventism. I did a study when I was in college, a report on Seventh-day Adventism, which was fascinating. I'm not going into all the details of that, but, you know, basically, they, they didn't always worship on Saturday. 
that came later with, with Helen G. White and some of her teachings. But they, they believe strongly in the second coming. The problem is a couple of their leaders tried to, again, predict the day. But Christ was coming, so they said, well, what better way to greet Christ than you know, to, to meet him by sitting on the roof of the church? So they all put on white robes and sat on the rooftop of their church because they believed Christ was coming. I'm not sure why, because the Bible says he will give us white robes. We don't need to provide them ourselves. And I'm not sure how sitting on the rooftop of your church is going to get you there really any faster. But that's what they did. Christ didn't come. This happened, I forget how many times, repeatedly, over and over and over again. So finally, the numbers grew smaller and smaller and smaller. And that's basically how Helen G. White ended up becoming the, the prophetess, the teacher of that church, and took them a whole different direction. So what are we supposed to do? Let's all get our white robes on and sit out in the parking lot and hold hands and wait for, for Christ to come? No. The Bible tells us a couple things we should be very clearly doing. First of all, we need to make our calling and election sure. We need to examine ourselves, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, to see whether we be in the faith. You know, if the thought of Christ's return does scare you, then maybe it's because you're not really ready to meet him. And the thought that you could stand today before the Lord brings terror to your heart is partly because you're not really ready. The thought of having to give account of your life before God does scare you because you know that you're not really right before God. If you know you're trusting in Christ alone to save you, if you know your sins have been forgiven, you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, if you know you're serving Christ and you are, your heart is right before God, you ought not to be scared of the thought of Christ's return. That ought to just thrill you. I think it's interesting that a lot of times in the past, preachers have preached on the second coming of Christ with the intent of scaring people. Uh, that ought not to scare you. If you're a believer, that ought, you ought to rejoice. I look like, man, wouldn't it be wonderful? Rather than coming back tonight for the evening service, we all met around the throne of Christ. That'd be great. Jeff could lead the singing up there. And, and we can, I mean, we, you know, I, I, we joke about this, but that's the reality, folks. That's the reality. Secondly, we need to consider are we living soberly and righteously in this present world? That's what Paul says in Titus 3.12 in, in light of these things. 2 Peter 3.11 says, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be? In holy conduct and godliness, looking for the hastening of the coming of the day of God. Understanding Christ is coming ought to, ought to drive us to live godly, holy lives, seeking to, to to kind of sift through what is of importance and what is not important. You know, it's interesting to hear testimonies of people who are facing death and the values that suddenly are important to them. Steve Jobs was not a saved man, um, but I read testimony of those who were close to him in his last days and the things that he, he said were important to him was not his wealth. He said that was just total waste because he knew he was going to leave his wealth to someone else. Uh, but he said, of course, he didn't know the Lord. 
and spiritually dead. But he regretted he had not spent time with his family. Things that were not as valuable to him earlier in life when he faced and realized the reality at the end of his life now became valuable. As a Christian, we ought to realize that many of the things that we get wrapped up in and, and get sidetracked with and, and argue about and get bent out of shape over are not really important. What is important is our walk with God. And, and, and are we serving him? Are we living for him? Are we living soberly, righteously in this present world? Realizing I'm going to see him. I could see him today face to face. And then thirdly, are you seeking to turn many to righteousness? The end of Daniel, after all these prophecies, talks about those who are wise are those that win a soul, are those who turn many to righteousness. Because he says, they shall shine as the brightness of the firmament and like the stars forever and ever. Those who are seeking to be witnesses for Christ and seeking to point men to Christ and point men towards righteousness, those are the ones who are going to shine throughout eternity. Well, we know the earth is in the middle of its labor pains, groaning and travailing. We saw that in Romans chapter 8 a couple months ago, waiting for the day of redemption. And we know that in the last days, we're warned that perilous times will come. But we're supposed to be ready to stand before him as a, at his appearing. Jesus used the illustration of the fig tree. He says, look at the fig tree. Look at the leaves. When, you, when they're already budding, you see and know yourselves that summer is near. But when you see these things happening, Jesus says, know that the kingdom of God is near. I think we can say without with a great deal of confidence, without setting dates or sensationalizing news headlines, that the leaves are starting to turn. Winter is approaching. Are you looking for the blessed hope for the coming of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ? Are you living in light of that hope? Is that, that ought to be the driving, motivating factor of your life. So I am here to serve Christ. Until he comes again or takes me before then, I am here to serve Christ. And we can live with confidence and hope in spite of our world that may be falling apart or all around us. Because we're clinging, not just wishfully, but we're clinging in confidence to that blessed hope.